Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Well, 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 you know, it always happens. It always seems to happen. You set up an interview with somebody who wants to be a leader or somebody who wants to be the uh, premier of a province, and it's all arranged, it's all confirmed, and they don't call. So uh, this time, the fickle finger of accusation points at Doug Ford, who's running for the leadership of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. I arranged with Mr. Ford, through his press secretary, that he would be on the air with us right now. And we want to talk to him about his plans to become the premier of the province of Ontario. It was all arranged, all confirmed, and no Doug Ford. So anybody who's associated with the Ford campaign, make some phone calls, tap somebody on the shoulder, remind them of the commitment of the promise they made, and then perhaps we can talk to uh, the man who I would argue would be the populist politician for, certainly for Ontario, and may open the door for some discussion about whether Canadians are ready for populist politicians. Andrew Wilkinson is the new leader of the British Columbia Liberal Party. As of last night, they had their leadership vote. Mo Scott is, um, Scott, no, I'm sorry, is the uh, new premier of Saskatchewan following Brad Wall. That's a, that's a big set of shoes to follow. Premier Wall, I'm not suggesting you have big feet. I'm not suggesting you have big feet. I'm just saying that you cast a long shadow. All right. So we do have uh, Mr. Ford with us. Do you have a watchdog? You know something? I apologize, uh, Roy. Uh, this phone is ringing off the hook. Oh, I'm, not, the hook. I'm not surprised. Uh, I'm glad we were able to hook up with you. Well, so, I'm happy to be on all the time with you, Roy. Yeah, we, we talk quite a bit. So, uh, Doug, if you win the leadership in the election... Yes. Are you the populist? Are you the populist candidate not only for Ontario, but do you open the door for populist candidates across Canada? Do you think? Well, I'm I'm really not too sure, Roy. I, all I know is I, I support the people, the average person that doesn't have a voice, that's tired of getting gouged by the government, and uh, we're we're going to go in there. We're going to uh, clean house. We're going to bring integrity and accountability to Queens Park, and you know, Roy, I know, and everyone else in the province knows there hasn't been any accountability for transparency at Queen's Park. You don't think there's really a lot of transparency within the leadership of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario either. If I, if you're quoted correctly, you doubt whether that the hierarchy of the party wants you to be the leader. That's correct. They don't. How have they let you know that? How, how has that message been delivered? Well, just, just by the rules. You know, they, they've cut off memberships in 16 days. Even though if we made it longer, it would be beneficial to the party to have more members, have a healthy uh, race. They, they know that I'm the only candidate, that if you give me longer time, I'll, I'll sign up more members than uh, uh, both the, the candidates combined. The other two candidates are three candidates, and they're good people. I like them. I absolutely like them. I'm going to continue running a, a clean, positive campaign. Doug, what are your top three priorities? Well, first, it's, 
it's about the people, Roy. People are, are tired of being uh, gouged, as I said. I'm going to empower the people. We're going to make sure we get rid of this carbon tax. It's a bad tax. And as I said on my speech last night, Roy, you know, if the Prime Minister uh, wants to come after me, well, as I said, as his father said, just watch me. How much of the uh, how much of the Patrick Brown uh, agenda do you see yourself being able to keep? And and I appreciate the fact that you said you'd get rid of the carbon tax. You're going to get a lot of pushback on that, maybe from some of the other candidates as well. But how much of the Brown agenda do you think you'd be keeping in place? I think we'll, we'll keep the vast majority of it. it uh, went to the convention. Uh, the members voted on it, Roy. I respect the members. And uh, we'll keep the vast majority of it. Let me ask you about the debt. Ontario's yep. debt is massive. You can't walk exactly. away from it. Taxpayers are squeezed already. And yep. uh, the United States is dropping its business and corporate taxes dramatically. How do you deal with that? And, and, and how can you persuade American and even Canadian companies to not close shop here and focus on becoming players in the United States economy, which is much bigger and taxes are now going to be lower? Well, you, you saw what happened to Campbell Soup. Uh, they've been around for close to 100 years in Etobicoke in our own backyard. 300 people are uh, out of jobs now. And we have to make sure that we have a competitive market to compete against everyone in the world. And when the Americans drop the tax rate, uh, their, their corporate tax rate down to 21% from 36, trillions of dollars are flowing back into the United States. Here in Ontario and uh, Toronto and the region, we have massive, massive property taxes, massive hydro bills, massive water bills, and it's about time that we start running the government efficiently. I, I haven't heard anyone at all three levels of government say how they're going to save money. We went to City Hall, we saved over a billion dollars. So we're going to save money by driving efficiencies through technology, and I think we have some of the smartest people in the country and in the world living here in Ontario but they're being burdened by tax. Close to 50% of your money is going to the government. Yeah, Doug, I, 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 appreciate, I appreciate what you're saying to me, but it, it's, it's really, it's generalities. Do you have any specific plans on how to create a reality, and keeping in mind that the tax burden and the, and the debt burden in the province of Ontario is massive, do you have any plans on how to persuade, how you can actually persuade a business to remain in this uh, constituency in the Ontario constituency and not move south, not take advantage of lower tax rates and a huge, huge consumer base. How do you do that? I mean, it's well, it's a huge all, challenge. In, absolutely, it's a huge challenge. But, Roy, I'll, I'll tell you what we did in, in Toronto, and this is what we're going to do in the province. My first day on the job, Roy, they told us we were facing $774 million of pressure, meaning they spent $774 million than what they had. The first year that People said we couldn't do it. We delivered a 0% tax uh, increase. We had the lowest tax rate from any large city in North America. We found the $774 million of efficiencies. And I challenge anyone, Roy, I challenge anyone to tell me there isn't 3 to 4% waste in hundreds of billion, uh, over a $100 billion budget. There's, there's a tremendous amount of waste. What if you happen to have to live with a minority government? Not something that you well you had it you had a you had a real cross section of representation in in Toronto. But if you if you had a minority government, you wouldn't be able to just drive things through. What I'm asking about is this: Is Doug Ford a good negotiator? Well, I think I built a, a pretty solid company here and in the U.S. by negotiating and uh, being open to uh, 
discussions with uh, people that may not see eye to eye with you. I feel we can get it done, and nowhere, nowhere at all in, in politics is there a tougher time than at the city of Toronto. Uh, I always say that's probably one of the, the toughest areas, one of the most dysfunctional areas in the city uh, to do business, because you have 44 different parties, and then you have the mayor that has one vote. And we ended up getting a tremendous amount done. Is there a politician in Canada? I have two more questions for you. Is there a politician yeah. in this country you would say, people want to know who you are, who, who do they compare you with? If there's someone who's got a high profile, maybe has a highly elected position, is there somebody in this country who sort of like Doug Ford? I, I can't answer that. You know, we're, I'm a fiscal conservative, but I have a big social conscience. The majority of our votes come, 40% of them come from traditional NDP voters. 49% come from traditional liberal voters, and then we have the fiscal conservative voters. But I'll tell you who won't vote for me. The special interests won't vote for me. The elites won't vote for me. And the establishment won't vote for me because they're too busy lobbying the government, looking for the big contracts, the sole source deals, and we're putting an end to the sole source deals, all the backroom deals that we've seen go on for the last 15 years with this liberal government. And this brings me full circle, right? I asked you at the beginning about being a populist candidate, and that sounds like a populist candidate, because you're telling me you can draw voters from all parties, but just the elites won't vote for you, and you don't believe the elites in the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario are on side with you. This this last question for you. What does Doug Ford do with the minimum wage issue? Well, I've always believed with the minimum wage, now once they uh, have it, you can't take it back, but... You know something? All this is a tax grab for the government again. The, the people that uh, go from, let's say, $11 or $12 up to $14, they'll be paying 30% more tax. I believe in not, not giving any tax. Put more money in their pocket. And then keep the, the minimum wage as low as you can to make, make companies more competitive. Make sure the people that are making the minimum wage actually, at the end of the day, bring more money home compared to the liberal plan. The only person benefiting from the Liberal plan is the government. Mr. Ford, I thank you for the time. We'll be talking again, and uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you pull the whole thing off, frankly. Well, Roy, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. Our views aren't too far apart, I can assure you that. Listening to you for years, uh, I think we're down the... We think along the same lines on a, on a lot of things compared to the other candidates that, uh, that are running. Do I get one of the first interviews if you're Premier? I, that I promise you. Okay, Doug, thanks for the time today. Good luck. Thanks so much, Roy. Bye-bye. Doug Ford, the uh, candidate for the leadership of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. I know some people are going to say, you, you just got too irritated because he was late. No. Because my obligation is to you. And um, I've always felt that it's important for political candidates to be on time. So anyway, that's all over and done with. It's grease under the bridge. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Dan Kelly is with me. He's the chair, the CEO, and the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And I was thinking the other day, it's been about a month since this country was talking about very little else other than the minimum wage. Uh, in Ontario, it's $14 and seven months. In Alberta, it'll be $15. Different parts of the country, it's less than that. But you know what happens? The pressure starts to build on provincial governments on minimum wage, and they react. So what's been the, uh, what's been the fallout from the minimum 
wage change. Dan Kelly joins us. Dan, has there been a has there been a response? What have you heard from businesses across the country over the last month as this issue has been rolling out and talked about? You know, there there has been quite a dramatic effect, uh, particularly for employees at the minimum. Uh, you know, at the, that are really just getting their their feet in the doors of the of the business community. Uh, there's been some significant rollback of hours of jobs uh, and, and, of course, expansion plans and, and growth for a lot of small businesses. We surveyed our members. We have 109,000 members across the country, but we surveyed our 42,000 members in Ontario to ask them what they have done as a result of the giant increase in the minimum wage to uh, the 20% increase to $14 an hour with the further dollar expected uh, uh, at the beginning of next year. And, and the most significant effect that they've had is that most small businesses, over half, have reduced or eliminated plans to hire new workers. So that's the, the first-line effect, is not for their existing employees, but half have scaled back their hiring plans, which, of course, is not great news for those that are trying to, to make their way into the labor force. Half of business owners, 51% in Ontario, said that they've raised prices. 50% said that they already have reduced or eliminated plans to hire young workers specifically. And this, this is one that worries me a lot because, you know, if you're going to pay 14 or 15 bucks an hour, a lot of employers say if you're evaluating between two employees, you may take the guy uh, that has some experience and not give the person that, that is inexperienced that you're going to have to train that, that chance. And that obviously is not a good thing. Uh, the list goes on. 33% have increased wages proactively to address this, which uh, is good news. Um, but a third have reduced their hours or reduced the number of employees in their business. A third of Ontario small businesses, and, and that's pretty significant. Yeah. Are, are companies in the rest of the country looking at the potential for a minimum wage to be raised in a significant manner in fairly short order where they are, and taking preemptive steps just so they're prepared? In some cases, yes. Uh, so, for example, many firms that have looked towards automation to ensure that they can find ways to reduce their overall headcount, those, those steps are being taken el uh, elsewhere. Of course, Ontario is not the only province that has increased the minimum wage significantly. Alberta has done the same. B.C. has made the decision, the new government there has, has said that they are going to go ahead towards the $15, minimum, uh, $15 an hour minimum wage. Uh, fortunately, in British Columbia, the government has said that they're going to study the, the trajectory to get there, which is a good thing. Quebec just did a, a much larger increase, not to 15 bucks an hour, but, uh, but they did a above inflationary increase there, too. So this is very real for a lot of businesses in other markets. And yes, business owners are watching very closely what is happening and of course, some that some companies that are national in scope, it's kind of hard for you to increase your wages for your Ontario workers and then leave your your people in Saskatchewan or in Manitoba behind. Mm -hmm. British Columbia at eleven thirty-five, uh, September fifteenth of last year, and the government has announced they have appointed a fair wages commission to recommend future minimum wage increases. So, um, and that's to find a, a sort of a middle ground between the minimum wage and living wage, but that leaves the door open for a potential significant hike in the minimum wage. Just had a caller, I want to ask you this question, Dan. We just had a caller suggest to us that if companies leave Canada because of the tax reality and, and other issues that is not, that not particularly uh, uh, friendly to them, 
If they leave and they have pension liabilities, they leave the country, they just shut up the doors and go. The caller said that if they do that, their pension liabilities in Canada are also uh, no longer fact. Is that uh, is that true? In in some cases, it can be. It depends on how they're leaving their Canadian workers behind. If they declare bankruptcy, for example, for a Canadian operation, then yes, if they did have a pension plan, and not a lot of small businesses do, but but for those that do have pension plans, uh, the employees may, not, if it's not fully funded, they may be out uh, out at in the, even in their retirement now, not with the full benefits they're expecting. We're certainly seeing that from governments in the United States where they have declared bankruptcy, and the workers are just not getting the money at all. Mm-hmm. Well, there was the Sims, uh, the, uh, the Sears issue in, in, in this country. Uh, well, how are Albertans, I have about 45 seconds, how are Alberta companies, particularly the smaller companies, preparing for the $15 minimum wage in October? In Alberta, the, the, the natural wage levels are a little bit higher anyway because, of course, the, the oil boom uh, did, did ramp up wages uh, fairly significantly. But there's a lot of firms that are being hard hit there, too. Uh, we certainly noticed in the restaurant sector in, in Calgary and, and, and other parts of Alberta that there has been some downsizing as a result of the giant increase in the minimum wage. And, of course, these same governments are also putting additional labor law changes like personal emergency leave days, uh, and, and other policies, in fact, that are making the uh, situation even worse. So mm-hmm. this is not a great uh, great time to be a young, inexperienced worker with a lot of companies looking to downsize opportunities in that yeah. category. Isn't that true, huh? And that's a real, real issue because it's the young people who need to be able to establish the foundations for their adult life. Dan, always good talking to you. Thank you for the time. Anytime, Rick. Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Inevitably and invariably, pipelines come into uh, into play, into discussion. And uh, for some people, pipelines are absolutely the bane of their existence. For others, it's just the most sensible and the safe way to transport natural resources to international markets. And in the case of oil or bitumen, it's uh, it's the sensible way to do things. I know that's going to irritate some people, but that's just the way it is. I didn't live too far from Lac Megantic in Quebec when that horrible explosion took place. And I went to Lac Megantic sometime afterwards. I talked to some people there. And they remember that night extremely well, clearly. It's not a conversation you really want to have, and I did it for a show we were doing at the time. So pipelines make sense. And there's the economic reality for Canada. We have natural resources. What other country would take, what other country would look at its natural resources as something of a, uh, of a problem? Can't think of any. But we do here, and then there's the issue of the American environmental groups that come to Canada and uh, will hold court here and hold sway here, and for what possible reason? Are they interested in the environment, or are they just helping the American economy at the cost of ours? More than 30 First Nations leaders in Alberta and British Columbia are backing the $16 billion proposed Eagle Spirit pipeline to run from Alberta to northern British Columbia, and that's twice the size of the Northern Gateway Project. 
Eagle Spirit would transport as much as a million barrels a day. The First Nations supporting Eagle Spirit have started a GoFundMe appeal for a million dollars to fight the federal government in their attempt to overturn Justin Trudeau's West Coast tanker ban. That's something, eh? You have to go to GoFundMe. There's a message there to tackle your federal government. Calvin Helene is the chairman of the Eagle Spirit Pipeline Company. He's a lawyer. He's the son of a British Columbia hereditary chief. He also argues that American environmentalists are responsible for the tanker ban. And uh, Calvin, uh, great to speak with you again. It's been a while. You also charged that Ottawa is standing in the way of indigenous peoples creating their own financial independence and losing up to 50 or $60 million a day without the pipeline. Yes, good afternoon. I, I've, um, I, I represent a, a group of uh, First Nations who came together uh, in the Eagle Spirit Project, um, and it was really a response to the Northern Gateway uh, pipeline that was proposed in Northern B.C., the First Nations uh, leaders were concerned about the environmental impact of that project, uh, first of all. And uh, secondly, they were offered, I think, on, on average $70,000 per year per community for a multi-billion dollar project to um, endorse it and be part of it. And um, But at the end of the day, the, um, the proponents were not prepared to um, listen to what their environmental concerns were. So out of that came Eagle Spirit Energy. And um, what we learned was that uh, the First Nations people aren't opposed to natural resource development. Most of the, most of the uh, areas that are, are uh, being proposed for this pipeline are in northern B.C. and northern, northern British Columbia, where there's 90% uh, or more unemployment and uh, the, unlike the uh, environmental groups who have a, a one-dimensional financial model, that is, the more they stop, the more money they raise, um, the First Nations leaders have to look at a more holistic basis for making their decisions. They have to consider, and they do consider, first of all, the environment. Uh, but once their concerns about the environment are, are um, met, they then look at... Um, issues like social welfare, uh, employment, business opportunities. Um, these are the communities that you hear about in the news that have, um, you know, high suicide rates, um, all of the dysfunction and, and problems we, we commonly hear about, and the leaders want to do something about it. So when you get uh, a group of, uh, of uh, American-led uh, or, or American-financed environmental groups flying celebrities into their traditional territory, um, dictating to them what, the, what they're going to have to do and dictating to the Canadian government what it needs to do when um, they have all of these really enormous problems to deal with, it doesn't go down very well. Um, the, you know, they, they use, uh, they pick and, and pay and use um, select, First Nations people from communities as puppets and props um, for saying that the communities are against all development, and um, they're they're happy to they're they're completely happy to 
um, create a, a park in our backyard, well, America uses Canada as a storage for natural resources that it'll tap at its price when it wants to. And it's, an, it's a ridiculous situation. And uh, the Trudeau government has said that um, the area that uh, the ban is applying to is from the north end of Vancouver Island to the Alaskan border. The community I'm from, Lamps, controls the land or has Aboriginal title over the land from the Alaskan border to about 150 uh, kilometers south. It includes Prince Rupert and all of that industrial area. And uh, the leaders of the community were never even uh, talked to. They never even were approached. In fact, uh, I was just advised that the previous council sent a letter um, out to saying that um, they, they um, opposed the Great Bear Rainforest. And, um, and yet uh, you go to uh, the environmentalist Sabora Berman's uh, autobiography, and she boasts about how she dreamed up the name the Great Bear Rainforest while sitting in a cheap Italian restaurant in San Francisco. Uh, as you said in your introduction, what other country would tolerate this? You know, um, the margin that, uh, that uh, re- American refineries are making on Canadian oil is, over the past four years, I've just read, is like $40 per barrel. $40 per barrel, at least $50 a million dollars per day were given away. Um, who would do that? It, it's, a, it's an absolutely insane situation. And when you're talking to, uh, and when you're parachuting celebrities into, um, environmental celebrities into First Nations communities, uh, where they've been the, the first stewards of the land for, in, in, in the case of my own people, 13,000 years, they've been looking after the environment, who are talking down their nose they're, and, and they're telling you what you've got to do to look after the environment, uh, of course, because it, it serves their interests. Uh, it just does not go down well, and, and this GoFundMe page is going to be used um, to uh, launch a legal campaign to quash this uh, oil moratorium act and, and pull uh, First Nations lands out of the Great Bear Rainforest. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Calvin, let me ask you some questions and get, maybe get some um, bullet point answers from you. Then I'm going to expand a little bit. Uh, so what's in the way now for the pipeline? Most fundamentally is the tanker ban, as I understand it. But but you also have to deal with governments and environmental assessments and studies uh, how much of that has been taken care of? If the tanker ban goes, are you a go? Calvin? Hello? Calvin, are you there? Okay, do you want to call him back, please? Oh, sorry. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine now. Hi. Uh, my phone accidentally went on to mute here. Sorry okay. Um, the answer to that is an absolute yes, um, uh, but... Uh, there has been no appetite to invest any money until um, this major uh, matter is uh, hurdle is cleared, and so um, we will do that when investment will come when when this is um, there's certainty on this matter. Okay, so there are investors ready to put money into it, but it has to be it has to be pl- uh, plausible, it has to be feasible first. 
Yes, well, there's one thing I, I should clarify. When, uh, like the, we developed the highest environmental model for the land and ocean in the world. Mm-hmm. It took us five years. It's a very difficult thing that we undertook that, that the, uh, the chiefs decided to support. And the way the chiefs engage with our project is through all the, lead, the leaders formed a chiefs council, and they engage in, in the project through the Chiefs Council. They voted at the first meeting unanimously to support a, um, an energy corridor. So this, um, this um, right-of-way could include LNG pipelines and, and uh, you know, um, electrical trans- transmission lines, etc. Okay. So h- how much interest is there then? I mean, you're going to have to persuade... Uh, the courts, I guess, will, will come into play at some point. But you probably would prefer to try to persuade a federal government that just enacted a tanker ban to do away with the tanker ban and see the logic of your proposal and uh, and engage the British Columbia government, have the B.C. government come on side, and uh, now you have this, I won't call it a war, but it's almost a war. Um, Financial Post says Notley takes off gloves in pipeline civil war with British Columbia what do you do with the with the with the provincial government in BC and the, and the and the federal government of Canada? Well, I, I can see um, I can see the points of view of of uh, both the provincial governments. Um, I mean, the uh, you, if you take a global view at at um, the most efficient way to get Canadian energy resources out, um, the market is in Asia. So uh, British Columbia is the is the most efficient route out. To um, to Asia, right, and um, and uh, the co- the Western economies are are resource dependent, particularly uh, Alberta's. But so BC is discovering more um, oil and and gas in the northeastern part of the province. And um, well, we've been uh, we've been uh, stymied uh, about how to get our resources out. Uh, I think we're we're promoting producing 3 million barrels, around 3 million barrels of oil per day. The U.S. is exporting 11 million barrels a day, producing and exporting 11 million barrels a day. And, um, well, we've been fighting over LNG pipelines. Uh, they, I think, now have three or four pipeline and export facilities in the U.S. And um, and it, it just doesn't make sense what we're doing from, a, from just a pure common sense well, you know, when you, when you mention that pure common sense, $50, 50 million dollars a day is a billion dollars in three weeks. Yeah, it's it's outrageous. That's uh, a I billion dollars in three weeks. How how much does a billion dollars fuel an economy every three weeks? Well, all of our um, our social programs and everything else that we uh, are being touted as Canadian values come from this, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, energy, I, I understand, is about 10% of our GDP. This is something that we, you know, we should be embracing if we can do it in, in an environmentally uh, sustainable and sensible way. What's your timeline? Um, What's your timeline, Calvin? Uh, well, if, if we um, had permission to go today, we'd probably have uh, something built in four years. Ready to go. Yeah. So your your main opposition is is environmental organizations in this country, but you, you're arguing that uh, their their funding uh, is is coming largely from their United States counterparts, 
and your your other opposition is the federal government and the provincial government in British Columbia. It's interesting to me that there's no tanker ban on the East Coast. There's no tankers disallowed, or at least uh, tankers are allowed on the St. Lawrence River, and there's some highly sensitive environmental uh, regions there, and the Gas Bay particularly. Nobody's arguing. There's no protest. There's nobody saying get the tankers off the St. Lawrence, but... No, there, there isn't, and, and, um, and the government, uh, federal government's allowing... Um, bitumen to be shipped out of Vancouver Harbor through an intricate ar- archipelago through the Salishan Sea, which is proposed as a World Heritage Site. And they've just approved February 1st, seven uh, deep exploration wells to be drilled off Nova Scotia. Uh, how does that make any sense to anybody except that this is somebody's pet environmental project and uh, the, the chiefs are going to quash that that law when it comes into effect because they have the constitutional rights to do that and um, and if they have to they they've said they will issue their own permits so you could you could, uh, the chiefs could collectively say we don't need to really worry about what Ottawa's position is or what the provincial government's position is we have the constitutional right to make the decision to build the pipeline and go. So, can you hold on? I'd like to talk to you a little longer. Is that okay? Sure. All right. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Now, Mr. Trudeau said it's the job of the federal government to decide what is in the national interest. It is the job of the federal government to decide what is in the national interest, as in bringing the ISIS terrorists to Canada, I guess. But I'm just reading a story on Global News. Natural Resources Minister Jim Carr says if British Columbia's government wants to launch further consultation links to the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, the province can, but Ottawa won't tolerate unusual, quote, unusual or unnecessary delays, end quote, on the project. Quoting again, people are asking a lot of hypothetical questions, end quote, Carr said in an interview with the West Bloc's Vasi Capellos. Um, quote, the B.C. government entitled is entitled to announce a consultation, we've had ours. It was broad and it was deep, and it led to, it led Canada to a conclusion. Calvin Helene is the chairman of the Spirit Eagle Pipeline project. Sixteen billion dollars is the projected cost. What does that say to you? What does that story say say to you, Calvin? Calvin, you there? Got that mute button pushed again? Hi, sorry, Hi. my phone jumps on to uh, mute here when it's not. It's <laughs> all right. In use. Um, I, I'm not sure what to make of that, except that um, what we've experienced, um, our chiefs have experienced, is uh, there was no consultation as required under the constitution with the with the chiefs that are impacted by this um, this oil tanker moratorium act, and um, under the. Um, the uh, existing Supreme Court of Canada decisions, the, where the, um, the federal government is making a decision that impacts the rights of Indigenous people, they have to consult, accommodate, get their consent unless there's a compelling, uh, a substantial, uh, let me just think of the language, a compelling and substantial public interest. Now, given that... Um, that oil's being shipped everywhere else in Canada, I can't see what a compelling and substantial public interest there is in banning um, oil tankers from northern B.C. coast. And they're, and they're obviously, clearly they prefer to have oil transported by rail, and rail is not safe, as we know. 
Yeah, rail is is proven to be a very expensive and um, and the most um, most uh, prone way to uh, spillages and and um, and accidents. I shouldn't say rail is not safe. Rail can at times be very unsafe, as we saw. And like McGantic, let me read you an email that I received from Rick. Rick writes in, in case I missed it, is there a refinery component planned for their, like your northern pipeline? It says the tanker ban is for heavy crude, not refined products. Um, that's in discussion, and uh, that's a decision that the chiefs themselves will make. Um, it's their territory, and they make the decisions in relation to their territory, so we'll be consulting them. So you don't need you don't need Ottawa's okay. That's the that's the argument that the that your constitutional rights, your treaty rights, give you the option to do as you wish in the interest and the betterment of Indigenous people, and yeah, and and so you can go ahead. It, now the federal government would you expect that the federal governments and provincial gov- governments would take you to court, or that environmental organizations would take you to court? Do you expect to be tied up in court for a long period of time? Well, I, we're, I, I'm just uh, looking at the, um, the Chilcotin decision, and, um, and you referred to this as a treaty, right? In B.C., there's no treaties, or largely no treaties. There are some in northeastern B.C. and a, and a, and a couple of other ones. But Aboriginal title uh, exists uh, over most of the British Columbia landmass, mm-hmm. and uh, the Chilcotin decision dealt with a particular group that had Aboriginal title, and in those cases... The uh, the rights are much stronger, and the court said in that case that um, that um, if uh, the federal government does not consult with First Nations, um, they they whatever they're proposing can be stopped. That the rights of the of of the Aboriginal population over their traditional territory are not just um, passive rights, they're rights to the economic fruits of the land and rights to act- actively manage that, those lands. Could you and, not ar- could, Marvin, uh, Calvin, could you not argue that the tanker ban uh, creates or violates your opportunity to develop improvement, economic improvements for First Nations people? That's exactly what would be argued. And... Um, and um, in addition to the fact that there was uh, no consultation, you know the the, uh, the federal uh, folks came out and and informed everybody what they're going to do, but they never followed any consultation protocol that they impose on any company. If you look at the Indigenous Affairs Minister Ministry site, there's a extensive. I think it's about a 60-page document about what companies are required to do when they have to um, consult with uh, First Nations. Uh, the federal government d- didn't do any of that stuff. It's, it's uh, entirely... Um, this, these, uh, this whole thing is being driven in the views of the chiefs by American en- environmental uh, NGO groups uh, trying to impose policy on their traditional territories um, to create a park in the backyard to somebody else. And it's just not on. So how does this dispute between Alberta and British Columbia factor into your objective and your plans? Would it be fair to say that Alberta would be more likely to be on side with what your plan is than British Columbia, at least this Sunday, like today? I would think so, because if we're talking about 
an energy corridor, I believe this is as uh, important an item to the um, to the uh, country as was the first railway, and and um, it's in, in that order of magnitude. And to be able to to first of all get so many diverse uh, First Nations groups to p- support a corridor is immensely difficult. It'll, in my opinion, I don't think it'll ever be done again. It's taken us five years to do it. To create and, that, yeah. And it's, um, it's, uh, it's the most environmentally sensible way to um, get energy resources out of, out of, uh, out of Canada by, by um, shipping it through a, a corridor so you don't have pipelines snaking all over the place and so on and so forth. And well, when you, when you look at what you're talking about, what you're proposing, if you just compare with what exists in central Canada, in Quebec, again, with the St. Lawrence River, clearly the St. Lawrence is being used as a corridor for the tanker traffic. They have a huge uh, tanker, for better lack of a better word, parking area for the uh, for the ocean tankers, and then they offload the oil onto smaller tankers, and then they, those smaller tankers make their way up to the refinery in Montreal. So there's, a, there's this corridor there. So how can you defend one corridor and shut down another and, and, and not allow another? So I would imagine there's, that, that would be another legal argument. Yep, that would be another legal argument. The, the idea that was being proposed when this moratorium was originally proposed, it was going to be based on science and uh, a bunch of other um, objective factors, and um, clearly it's not. Um, it's a uh, it's a decision that is uh, being politically driven through the through the um, federal government, um, largely by in the the chief's point of view, American environmental NGOs who have no business dictating. Uh, government policy in their traditional territories. So, obviously, you're not going to be sitting, waiting very long. You're going to take action. Um, when When is that expected? And uh, And is there the likelihood that it would pit Indigenous groups against one another? Well, Indigenous people each have their own territories. Right. And uh, on the coast, um, the community I'm from, um, we can't, we don't have a say in anybody else's territory. Okay, I understand. Doesn't, uh, it, it's not our territory. We don't have any say at all. We wouldn't go into somebody else's territory and, and tell them that what they're doing is a bad decision and they should stop it. Okay. Um, it's, uh, we have no business. That's the kind of the traditional protocol. Okay, and, Calvin. Uh, I tell I'm I'm out I'm out of time, but I, I I did a little math here, and I'm I'm not very good at math, so I'm probably I'm, I'm I, excuse me if I'm out by a bit, but if it's fifty million dollars a day and it's a sixteen billion dollar pipeline at fifty million a day, it takes you're going to take you about forty eight weeks to pay for the whole thing. I mean that's the entire fifty million were to go into the pipeline uh, construction and creation, it would take forty eight weeks to raise the sixteen billion dollars. So that puts a little bit of perspective about how much money we're talking about, and the economic realities and the economic punch such a project would in fact bring with it. And economics are front and center. Environment's hugely important, but so is uh, the economy of the country. It's great to speak with you again. When's the next dependency book coming out? 
Um, I'm about three quarters of the way through it, and actually, what I'm writing about is resource development. The, the book uh, working title at this point is Dances with Development making good money from resource development. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it. Your books are just absolutely spectacular and internationally renowned. So great talking to you again, Calvin, and I hope to do so again soon. Okay, thank you very much. Have a good rest of your Sunday. Thank you, you too. Calvin Helene, the chair of the Eagle Spirit Pipeline Project. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Terry Winter is the cousin of murdered pharmaceutical billionaire Barry Sherman. Mr. Sherman was murdered with his wife, Honey. Toronto Police Service have determined that it was murder. And uh, Mr. Winter has, according to some interviews that he's done, talked about a fantasy to kill his cousin. And uh, there was a failed lie detector also after Mr. Winter said um, that uh, Barry Sherman had asked Kerry Winter to kill his wife, Honey, in the 1990s. So we have an opportunity to speak with Kerry Winter and, and, and talk about some of these issues. There's so much swirling around in the, in the media. Mr. Winter, thank you for taking the time. You're very welcome. Yeah, the story I read was you were very angry at your cousin Barry Sherman over the loss of that decade-long lawsuit, and you were quoted as saying to the CBC, I was betrayed... My cousin hurt me, and now I want to hurt him. Does that mean you wanted to hurt him physically? No, no, not at all. Not not physically. But in terms of his, uh, his false reputation, especially amongst the, and in the Jewish community here in Toronto. Okay, because it also go on to say that you, you said you had fantasies about killing Mr. Sherman and talked about doing so, and very graphically. That's correct. So that was just anger speaking? Well, you know, I, I have struggled off and on for, for many years with drug addiction. I'm very proud and pleased to say that I'm six years off all drugs and all booze. I regularly attempt, uh, attend 12-step meetings. And I've also been in uh, treatment at the CAMH with my psychiatrist for well over 15 years. So what, uh, what Harvey Kishore is relating to was an off-the-record conversation I had it was clearly not in front of Bob McEwen for the Fifth Estate episode. It was in a coffee shop, believing it was off the record. And he asked me point blank if I ever had thoughts of killing Barry. And I was rigorously honest, and I said many. That was only one of these so-called uh, fantasy uh, or, or uh, murders that, that would you know, swirl around in my mind. Mind you, at different times in my life, and obviously when I was on drugs. Mm-hmm. Now, you also said that your cousin asked you twice in the 90s to kill his wife. Yes. That happened. It definitely happened. I want your, your listeners to understand something. That when I first went to the Fifth Estate, I went there because initially the story from the police was that it was a murder-suicide, and everybody around, friends and family of the Shermans, were in horror and disbelief that Barry would harm a hair on Honey's head. So I came forward to say not only was it possible... But Barry had a disdain for his wife and a very, very bad temper. When the narrative changed and the police decided it was not murder-suicide, I don't understand why the Fifth Estate continued to even want to hear my story. I only went there to say, hey, you know, this, this idea that it was implausible for my cousin Barry to harm his wife was absolutely uh, not the truth, that it was quite possible because in the years that I knew my cousin, he spoke openly about his hatred of his wife. And again, this lie detector test that I did and failed miserably, 
at the Fifth Estate. I went the next day with my attorney, and I passed a lie detector with flying colors. Uh, his, Mr. Sherman's uh, f- children, Mr. and Mrs. Sherman's children, very angry John, about this talk. Lauren, Alexandra, and Kayla, yes. Yeah, they're very angry about this talk about murder-suicide. But you insisted that, you told Toronto Police that in your, as far as you're concerned, that's what happened. I actually, quote, told Detective Price that they're chasing a phantom murder and that they should come clean and tell the truth. And I was referring to Brian Greenspan's spin and with the, the Sherman's billions of dollars trying to rewrite history. I told Detective Price, when he, when he, when he uh, questioned me for a four-hour time frame from 9 o'clock to 1 in the morning, that not only, only, not only am I not a suspect, but how could I be, quote-unquote, if Barry killed her and hung himself, how could I be responsible for their murder? Now, the Toronto police say that it was they were both murdered. Do you believe that as far as the police are concerned, that you are a suspect? No, not at all. And what have they told you to let you lead you to that uh, belief that they don't think that you're a suspect? As I just stated, I looked at Mr. Price when I was leaving, mm-hmm. and I wished him all the best, and I said, good luck chasing the phantom murders. You and I both know what Barry did, and you should come clean and shut down this false investigation. What do you want people to know? What do you want people to know, Mr. Winter, in summation? What do you want the people who are paying attention to every detail of this of this story, what do you want people to know? Most importantly, yeah, that my cousin Barry Sherman was psychotic. He wasn't playing with a full deck. No, that's he was not a fair. very, very bad person. He just didn't rip off orphans. All right, so that's not fair. That's not fair. I don't want to go on with that. Um, but we wanted to go give you the opportunity to hear Mr. Winter, but I, I won't go there. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Lee Chappelle joins me on uh, The Roy Green Show. He spent many years in Canadian prisons, including in three maximum security prisons. He's the, uh, the head of Canadian Prison Consulting. And Mr. Chappelle, while he was in prison, found that he had an ability to also advise others and, uh, and be a, uh, an advisor and a mentor to men who were in, in prison. And uh, that's turned into a very successful business reality for him. Lee, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you, sir. Good afternoon. So when uh, Larry Nasser is taken to prison, when he leaves the courtroom and he go- goes to prison, the prison yeah. he's going to be in, uh, he's, is, he a, is he definitely a marked individual? Well, one would think. I mean, when we look back historically through other... Uh, unsavory, egregious cases. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer comes to mind. Um, you know, a variety of people along those lines. They're, they're typically, I don't believe any harm will come to him. I believe he'll be put into a super maximum solitary confinement for the, for the balance of his life. And that's essentially how the system would deal with somebody of that, of that nature. So he, which, which goes against the grain of pushing for absolute um, restriction on solitary confinement, but nonetheless, there's a case where it applies. Okay, but for as far as the offenders, the inmates in the prison is concerned, if they have an opportunity to get at him, they will. If they did, they would, for sure. But they call that good order of the institution, and that's, that's the administrators of the, of the prison um, 
and and ultimately they're aware of this. They're very cognizant, just as you and I are, uh, and so therefore he's not going to be um, reachable. And Dahmer, in that case, there was actually some sort of um, uh, let's say internal mistake that allowed him to to surface, and he was killed as soon as he as he did. Uh, but there was a lot of um, reaction to that, and and so I like I'm confident that Nasser will be in solitary for the balance of his, mm-hmm. of his natural life. There was also Joseph Fredericks uh, in Canada, who was a sociopathic homicidal pedophile, and uh, and and he was killed in prison. But again, as you say, it's 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 the rare occasion when that happens. But he'll be yeah. he'll he'll obviously they'll make it known to him what they think of him. Oh, yeah. Um, absolutely. When you talk about Clifford Olson, there's somebody who spent the rest of his natural life in solitary. Um, and I believe he lobbied in all kinds of different ways to come out. And if he did, it would be, he would have been coming out to his death. There's no question about it. Um, you know, I, I don't... I ha- I'm hard-pressed doing this. I hate bringing up their names and putting their names into the light of day, but, you know, people like Paul Bernardo and Clifford Olson and, and Colonel Williams, et cetera, they are locked up in solitary, and they're, they're, and they're protected for that very reason. The Correctional Service of Canada doesn't want to have to answer to the murder of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have prisons, like you've mentioned, Workworth and Bowdoin and, and places throughout Sprinkled that are now uh, highly populated with sex offenders. And you're right, there are short-timers mixed in with them. But beyond that, uh, there, there was a zero tolerance put into Canadian prisons in the mid-'90s that tried to abolish protective custody. That didn't work um, in the high securities, but it did in the lower security. So essentially, if you couldn't live with somebody or coexist with somebody who was a sexual offender, you were going to be the one who was going to be locked up. And that was kind of the, the, the approach they took because the, the numbers were growing and they weren't able to sustain protective custody. Is the uh, prison system uh, a real mess? Is it a mess? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Roy, just to be fair, yeah, it's a microcosm of societal times. It's like morals versus moras. And, and you know... Um, morals refer to how we should act, morals are, you know, how society does indeed act. And, you know, dating back to biblical times, morals, right? They're, they're mm-hmm. static, right, right and good, right and wrong, you know, and, and that's very clear. Today, uh, when I look, I started serving time in the mid-80s, and when I went in, it was very clear. If you were a sexual offender, you were put into protective custody, no, no question about it. Um, having said that, there weren't forums like Google to check out people. We would have uh, newspapers coming into the prisons and the jails so that we could follow. Uh, there was guys that tracked constantly to see who was coming in and know what they were coming in for. But there was, there was a very clear line there. And I would say Canadian prisons were more of a homogeneous makeup at that time. And, and things have, have shifted considerably. It's, it's more of a challenge today. You know, it's interesting you say that. When 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 we went to uh, to uh, Joyceville to do the program, they gave us the media tour, of course. Yep. All right, and we're walking down a hall, and it was laundry day, and walking toward us are all inmates, offenders with their laundry bags. And yep. I remember the engineer looking at me and saying, 
this did they look like my uncle my dad my my brother <laughs> right the, the 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 guys that were scariest looking were the guards that's yep. that was the comment that was made you're listening to the Roy Green show heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML and we're talking about uh, life inside Canada's prisons and I started getting curious about that with uh, Larry Nasser and then we had our own experiences with our programs that we did inside uh, prison. Specifically, uh, Lee, what's the, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, yeah, Lee, what's the, uh, what's what's the objective of, of Canadian prison consulting? Are you talking to the people who are going in for the first time and, or, or what, who's your client? Well, it's wide ranging. We have clients, uh, some, some from the States. We have private clients that are facing incarceration and, and typically, yes, for the first time. Uh, I would say 90, high 90% of, of my clients are, are first time in trouble, first time facing criminal and incarceration. We also work training governments, uh, doing various uh, training engagements. I've spoken at the Senate as an expert on mental health in prisons. So it's, it's, a, it's a wide ranging. Uh, I'm looking more towards the big picture stuff as much as I can mm-hmm. and training and working with governments to try to improve our, our correctional system right now. But we have a, a fair a fair private caseload that we maintain at all times. So I'm looking at the FAQ page, frequently asked questions, and I see uh, going to jail for the first time, assault, Mm -hmm. rape, locked-in cell, bathroom and showers, visitors, guards, ratting, friends in jail, solitary confinement, the whole gangs, who, uh, what and who will be in my cell, and there's about another seven or eight questions. The basics. The basics. So which are the ones that, that are your most frequently asked about and what are the answers well i take an approach you know i work with with, the, with when it comes to prepping clients i don't take on every client a, prerequis- a prerequisite for me roy when i work with somebody is i i believe firmly in the cornerstones that worked for me that that, that enabled me to extricate myself from the system after you know, I was born to the Children's Aid Society. I went into foster care. I, long story short, I was I was an idiot for a long time in my life. I stole. I was in, I had addiction issues, and and I failed repeatedly. What worked for me was ownership, accountability, insight, remorse, um, and and that's prefaced with acceptance and forgiveness for me to 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 finally manage to get my way out of there. So when I work with people, they need to take ownership. Uh, and if they don't, I don't work with them. Uh, my, my focus is on them working towards insight as to what brought them, keeping the focus on their crime and what brought them to where they are. So that, yes, they're prepared to do time, but more importantly, not only to do the time, but to come out and not go back. And, and so that's, that's a big part. And, yeah, the questions that are, are always the fearful questions of, you know, will I be raped and, and how, does, how does everything work from... So I walk people visually right from the moment they're in a courtroom, the sentence is rendered, and they're brought down to the bullpen, which is in the basement of every courtroom, uh, and that's where you start your custody, and you're brought to the most local, uh, closest um, detention center. So in Hamilton, that would be Barton Street. Um, but yeah, you know, a lot of things that I impress upon my clients, there's no cookie-cutter approach. It's... Uh, watch, listen, and learn. I ask them not to ask questions and not to center themselves as a newbie, as a green person who doesn't know. Um, I tell them that the bailiffs right at the beginning, right through to the correctional officers upon arrival at the correctional center, uh, are going to share whatever information they're going to share with them without prompt. So just wait. 
Um, also, when it comes to things like routines of showers, phone calls, uh, those sort of things, you know, watch, listen, and learn. Every range and every jail within a range, uh, or every range within a jail runs through a different beat. Our code has, inmate code has, has evaporated for the most part over the course of the last 20, well, 10 years, certainly. So it, it, it's nuanced everywhere you go, and I, and I believe my approach is always watch, listen, learn, don't stand out. Do everything you can to show savvy beyond your years. But also do your own time and keep the focus on you. Don't fall into subculture because that's a slippery slope. And when I was a young man, that's what happened to me. I, I ended up um, going from a broken you know, uh, upbringing to jail for the first time at 16. And I found a sense of family and belonging there. And that was uh, the beginning of a long road for me. I've heard that. Uh, I've heard that. Quite a few times, in fact, a, a friend of mine who uh, spent a lot of time in prison, and I mentioned mm-hmm. his name to you, and you you knew him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he said to me, uh, "It was the family I it became the family I didn't have, became the brothers I didn't have." Yep, and that's that's a slippery slope, and that's one that I, I try to protect against. Uh, you know, keep the focus on what's out here, and most of the people I work with have strong family support, have a lot of community support. And, and that's where the focus needs to, to remain. And not only that, but beyond not just making through a prison, but coming out and not returning to it is the real goal that, that, that we employ. It was uh, startling to find out, you know, this goes back maybe 20 years, but the recidivism rate at that time was 75 to 78 percent. So three yep. quarters of the men who were in prison were going back. Yep. Yeah, I failed many times. I... I um, I began my sentence with two years less a day, and by the time I finished, I served 20 years, 11 months, and 13 days. And, and I can point to many, many reasons from complacency to frustration to entitlement to, you know, a lot of different things that, that, that took me down throughout the course. I always wanted to change, but it took me a long time to realize um, that making change was a heck of a lot different than wanting to, make, <laughs> wanting to change. Yeah. And it was tough. It was a, it was a tough transition for sure. You become accustomed. Well, you've, uh, you've, you've got, I'm sorry. You have a thriving business, and yeah. uh, you've you've changed your life, developed your life. I thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing the information. Uh, it's well, it's it's a it's fascinating, and it's also important. And I'm sure there are parents who are listening, and they know their kids are maybe in trouble, and it gives them something to to maybe point at. CanadianPrisonConsulting.com. Lee Chappelle. Thanks, Lee. All the best. Thank you, Roy. Same to you, sir. Thank you. Lee Chappelle. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. So uh, we will write off this interview with uh, Christine Elliott. And we're going to talk to my good friend and um, panel member. I don't want to call him panel. This panel. Linda Leatherdale of Beauties and the Beast, which we air on Saturdays. And Linda said something yesterday during our program which um, just struck me I've never heard it expressed in the manner that Linda expressed it and I kind of drew attention to it you said hi Linda hello Roy you said as you were talking about taxation and talking about the economic stresses that we all face as people in this country trying to make a meet with B and C meet with D and not, you know, get into red ink too much personally. You said 
taxes, income tax, should be affordable. I've never heard it expressed that way, and it just struck me that it would be, wouldn't that be just perfect? Because then you wouldn't wouldn't be complaining all the time about the thugs sticking their greasy hands into our pockets without our permission. You know, if you stick your hand in somebody's pocket without permission on the street, you go to jail. (laughs) And where's the accountability to where our tax dollars are going to, Roy? Yeah. Um, And I think, and I've been listening to your show all day today, well done, and Doug Ford makes a lot of sense, and it's too bad Christine Elliott uh, didn't come on. But there are a lot of angry people out there because of the waste of our tax dollars. So affordable income taxes. Now, you know what? I, I, I had to do some research because I'm going to get some people saying, well, we don't pay the same income tax burden as, let's say, Switzerland and some parts of Europe. But come on. In seven provinces now, the top marginal income tax rate exceeds 50%. But, of course, it's the middle class I was talking about and affordability. So, you know, when you look at the numbers, it's, it's absolutely staggering. It's just not income taxes that we pay. It's the total tax load in Canada. So, for example, you have two working adults in a family with kids bringing in over $108,000. Well, income tax is a component here, but in total taxes, they're going to be paying out $47,000 and for a tax rate of 43.4. And how are you going to save properly? Because you don't know what emergencies are going to arise. You don't know when the car's transmission is going to leave the car and end up on the road behind you. You don't know when things are going to go, just going to go wrong for you financially. And, and then you have to reach for the plastic. Yep. Plus, yep. we're constantly being told by those who supposedly manage our affairs with a degree of pragmatism and interest in our well-being, that we should be driving the economy forward. So go and buy the big ticket item. Get the new fridge. Get the, get the new car. Get the TV. Get the things that you, that you really want. Go and buy it because you help the economy. We want the stuff. We've now been green-lighted to do it by the people who, who supposedly are, have our best interests at heart. And then what, what happens after that? We end up with credit uh, balances that are, what's, what's, the, what's the interest rate? 25, 24, 25 oh, percent? Depending, you know, if you miss a few payments, it could go as high as 30 percent or higher on those credit cards. And here's the other thing, like we talked about this forever on your show, Roy, that consumer debt is at record levels, over $2 trillion, that uh, for every dollar in disposable income, we owe $1.61. So, you know, but think about it. Get your paycheck out. Pay stubs out, everybody. Look at the income tax grab that comes right off your paycheck up front. Think about this. We're going to have tax time coming up, Roy. Uh, and you, if you're lucky, will get a return. But if you don't and you <laughs> owe, well, you're going to be slapped by the tax man uh, for interest and late payment charges. So let's think that you might have to put that on your credit card because here's the other thing. We've been using our homes as ATMs to keep up. But now home prices are starting to slip. So you put that on a credit card, it is outrageous. I think the statement I wanted to say, Roy, was that we are enslaving the people. And don't think Justin Trudeau is your hero. He says, oh, I'm going to help out the middle class. So the second lowest income tax bracket fell from 22% to 20.5% on the federal level. But he also took away tax credits. And now he's going to hike the CPP payments off of our payroll which comes off of our checks as well 
So the average family is actually paying over 2000 more in income taxes, not less. And so, you know what, Doug Ford, go for it, populist. Put tax reform, put lower taxes in your platform. We can do it because the more money that goes back into our pockets, we are going to go out and spend more. Do you know what, Linda? What, 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 what's happened here has, with the departure of Patrick Brown, what has happened here is a unique opportunity for in one constituency, and population-wise the largest in Canada, for in one constituency people who have a conservative philosophy because that's what supposedly, I've never quite understood what progressive and conservative do side by side, but anyway, if, if you have a conservative philosophy, you now have a unique opportunity to get up and, and put your case to the people, the people who will vote for you who are party members. I know you've got to sell the party memberships and that's the way it works. And if the party doesn't like you and Mr. Ford says that's his uh, dilemma, then they can make it more difficult for you. But they can't make it impossible. But you can make your case for the, to the people who are going to vote and you can get people to go out and buy a party membership if they believe in you, and you can then commit to doing exactly what people require. You just, I mean, you just hit it. Really, nothing more needs to be said than what you said yesterday, and that is that income tax should be affordable. In other words, it's fair. In other words, there are things that the government has to do. There are responsibilities governments have fix the potholes, make sure that the building code is appropriate, make sure that, uh, you know, policing is, 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 is up to snuff, make sure that our lives are uh, livable. That's their job. That's what they apply for. To then make the situation far more difficult by making taxes onerous is so punitive. And then what do they do after that? They blame the last guy. <laughs> And not only that, but here's something else. In Ontario and certainly Ottawa, record, record government debt. Today's debt, tomorrow's taxes, Roy. So here we are. And you know what? Yes, give the people a break. If we're going to live in a consumer economy, then allow them. But don't hamstring them and don't make them slaves to debt. And we have to think big picture because we have to think of the whole country. We have to think of federal income tax, and then there's provincial income tax. Yes, there is. And if you happen to live in Quebec, God help you, because I was there for 10 years, and they're still chasing me, even though I don't live there anymore. I get, I get, I honestly, I get, I get uh, um, the the quarterly installment payment requirements, because if you if you have uh, you know a few streams of income, which I do, uh, they want you to pay on installments on the installment. So you're paying ahead. I get these things, these forms from Revenue Quebec, and I to my Ontario address, and I called them and I said, "What the hell are you doing? You don't I don't live, live there anymore." They said, "Well, we're going to send them for two years in case you come back." The hand of the tax man, the always the ta after your but money, it's, Roy. It, it's, it should be, you said it so well, income tax should be affordable, and if it is affordable, and the obligations of government are met, then you wouldn't have people angry. As it is now, we're going to be paying every dollar that you earn, every dollar that I earn, every dollar anybody listening to this program earns, will go to government from the 1st of January until sometime around the 9th of June. That is correct. 
The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.